Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. My travels all behind me. Today I wanted to zoom in on the birth of U.S.-China relations. Not official diplomatic relations, but the time when these two nations first got together and saw each other up close. So let's get right into it. In a nutshell, the American colonies declared their independence from Great Britain on July 4th, 1776, and seven years later, on September 3rd, 1783, the Treaty of Paris was signed at Versailles that, among other things, ended the Revolutionary War. And with that, like with South Sudan in July 2011, there was a brand new country on the world map, the United States of America. And just like any other country must do, when they become independent, the U.S. had to go forth into the world and, you know, get the word out. Now, over in the Forbidden City in Beijing, they had no clue what was going on. When those assembled at Independence Hall on July 4th, 1776, were inking their names to the Declaration, it was right about the halfway point in the Qianlong era of the Qing Dynasty. The dynasty in China was really peaking about now. This was Imperial China's last hurrah. From here on out, it's going to be all downhill for the, for the Qing Dynasty. Our former colonial masters, the British, had been trading with China for quite a long time. The Honorable East India Company was founded in the year 1600, and thanks to their efforts, the finest in Chinese exports made their way from the city of Guangzhou, called Canton back then, to the homes of all British subjects, including those residing in the American colonies. But because of the monopoly granted to the East India Company, no direct foreign trade was permitted between the colonies and, and any foreign nation. If you lived in Baltimore or Richmond and wanted to sip tea or buy some lacquerware, you had to get it from England. English traders handled all the direct trade with China and the Far East. If you saw an object on someone's mantelpiece in Delaware and it said made in China, it got there via England. Not only America's founding fathers, but their fathers as well were all aware that there was this country called China and it was far away and it was exotic beyond description. They knew China produced, you know, the silks that were all the rage throughout the empire. And it was from China that all the tea they consumed without end came from. They loved this stuff back in the American colonies, no less than anyone else loved it. Tea, of course, had grabbed hold of everyone, and it was just as popular then as it is today. And the other things, the porcelain items, the silk garments and accessories... Many people were mesmerized with the beauty of these things. And, you know, if the items were within their means, they, they had to possess it. These Chinese imports were something that people of the American colonies might adorn themselves with on special occasions or display in their parlor or above their hearth that might give off a, a whiff of the exotic and remind them of that faraway place of legends. Some of the colonists might have read the tales of Marco Polo or had read a little bit about China, you know, here and there. But for the most part, during the colonial period in the U.S., China was a land that no one knew much about, but they knew it was there. The beauty of the objects they saw that had come from China intrigued Western people as much as they intrigued the, the Sogdians back in the Han Dynasty. Not only these imported goods, but chinoiserie as well was all the rage. Chinoiserie, you know, took Chinese motifs and blended them with Western shapes and designs to create, you know, a new kind of style. On first glance, it looked and appeared Chinese, but upon closer inspection, you know, you'll see some Western element added that, you know, gives it away. If there was a year that marks the line of demarcation between China, the legendary place, and China, the actual place. That would have to be 1735. That was the year Description de la Chine was published in four volumes. The author was Jean-Baptiste Duhold. This book, 
freely available on the Google, was translated into many languages. And we in our little China History podcast community know it as Duhold's General History of China. Up until this seminal work was released for general consumption, pretty much anyone who knew anything about China had read it in Rusticello's best-known work about Marco Polo's travels, or alleged travels, if you subscribe to the venerable Francis Woods viewpoint. There was no definitive work that neatly, articulately, and with such depth and scholarship presented China and Chinese culture to the West. With this newly published work, it spawned a whole generation of China experts and scholars, both professional and amateur. Du Hold, who lived from 1674 to 1743, came out with this general history of China right in the middle of the Renaissance. Voltaire was 41 years old and Montesquieu 46. Isaac Newton had only been gone for eight years. So if you can picture the times and who was around back then, we can all agree this was a pretty good and opportune moment in history for something like this general history of China to be published. Now at last, Western people could sort of put their nose up against the glass and peer inside and read about descriptions of all these amazing things that up to now had only been privy to the Jesuits and, you know, those who were their allies. Now at last, in 1735, when George Washington was three years old and still had years to go before he cut down that cherry tree, Jean-Baptiste Duhold gave the world his masterpiece. Matteo Ricci's History of the Christian Expedition, 1608 to 1610, shed some light on China, but only as it related to the Jesuit mission. In 1665, there was Jan Neuhoff's accounts in Dutch that told of his travels in China in the earliest years of the Qing dynasty. It was entitled Collection of Voyages as the Embassy of the Dutch East Indies Company to the Great Tartarian Cham, the present Emperor of China. When Thomas Jefferson was living in France, his closest friend and the man who followed him into the White House, James Madison, father of the Constitution, had written and told him he must buy Duold's book and bring it back to the States. Jefferson and Madison had both read it. Benjamin Franklin had read it. Duold's book made the rounds, and that class of people who read these kinds of things all read it or knew someone that did. It was one of those books. It was America's first chance to scratch beneath the surface and see what China was sort of all about. Duold's book was also published in a premium version that was entitled The General History of China, containing a geographical, historical, chronological, political, and physical description of the Empire of China, Chinese Tartary, Korea, and Tibet. And the preface of the book begins, quote, As China is the most remarkable of all countries yet known, the English reader must be greatly pleased to find the exactest account of it that has ever yet appeared in our language. And the punchline to all of this is that Duhold, he never even went to China. But he did talk to 17 guys that did. All Jesuits, of course. They always had the inside track. And these 17 Jesuits upon their return to the continent at the end of their service, regurgitated everything they knew from all their collective years in China and in dealing with the Chinese. Then Duhold took all this information, organized it, and condensed it, and put it all in this book. In 1687, the works of Confucius first appeared in Latin. In fact, in 1733, a friend of Benjamin Franklin acquired a set of the Wu Jing and the Si Shu, the five classics and the four books that, you know, made up the core of classical Chinese philosophy. During the period of the American Enlightenment that lasted from about the birth of Franklin in 1706 to the death of Jefferson in 1826, Confucius really got put on a pedestal. In the colonies and after independence, the great sage was already viewed in a positive light and, you know, as the symbol of moral rectitude. Benjamin Franklin published excerpts from Confucius in his Pennsylvania Gazette, 
Among his many accomplishments, Franklin is also called the first American Sinophile. Besides this, there were many scholarly discourses and essays floating around in a whole bunch of magazines and pamphlets of the day. Thomas Jefferson greatly admired Chinese culture and attempted to weave parts of it into the fabric of the culture of this new nation that he was one of the many co-founders of. In particular, there was architecture and in how he designed his gardens at Monticello. He loved to blend Chinese elements together with the Italian architecture that he so loved. Voltaire had written later, The Chinese, for 4,000 years, when we were unable even to read, knew everything essentially useful of which we boast at the present day. You know, in the 1780s, several Americans with pretensions to literary fame wrote these uh, kind of travelogues of their days spent in the merchant trade in China. Mind you, China, for any foreigner prior to 1841, meant Canton. Ever since 1757, all trade had been restricted to that place only. And that's how it stayed for 85 years until the Opium War sort of whacked the piñata and added a few more holes. This was the first time, mid-1700s, that China trade mania arrived in the West. American merchant traders eyed that place and wished they could get a piece of that market. But as long as America was a colony of Britain, forget it, all American ships had to stay out of China. The East India Company held a monopoly for all trade. Uh -huh, but not anymore, not after the Treaty of Paris. By September of 1783, China was fair game. Being a free and independent country meant the United States didn't have to put up with the EIC's monopoly. Now at last, they could freely and legally sail their ships from Boston or New York or from wherever, and sail directly to China to become fresh meat for the Hapo and the Kohong in Canton. Now that the newly created United States of America was free to get around the EIC monopoly, didn't mean adventurous traders could just get up and head to Guangzhou. This was a very, very expensive endeavor. Massively expensive and risky, too. Even in the late 18th century, sailing from one end of the earth to the other was, you know, always an iffy proposition. You had the cost of the vessel, the crew, the insurance, the provisions, and last but not least, all the stuff of the highest possible value that you could cram into every available square inch of space. That could be more than one to $200,000 worth of stuff. Maybe more, depending on how many Spanish silver dollars were loaded on board. So you had to be a man of substantial means in order to finance an expedition like this. My fellow Americans familiar with their early history might have heard of a guy named Robert Morris. No relation to Governor Morris, though they were close friends. He was probably the richest guy in America when Paul Revere made his midnight ride. Along with Chaim Solomon, Robert Morris was the main financier of George Washington's Revolutionary Army. He's also the only guy who was a signatory to not only the Declaration, but the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution as well. He was also credited with being the first one to use the dollar sign that we are you know, so familiar with. He made his fortune in the shipping business. Robert Morris was keen to explore these deals that would involve trade with China. Fate one day brought Mr. John Ledyard face to face with Robert Morris. Ledyard was a Connecticut Yankee who ended up in the employ of the British Navy. He was on board the HMS Resolution during the famous voyage of Captain James Cook. Ledyard was a tragicomic figure. He was the guy who first figured out when he was briefly docked in Canton in the service of the British, that the Chinese went gaga for North American furs, especially sea otter pelts. They fetched a very substantial premium and apparently weren't easy to find in China. Sea otter fur was the Chateau Ikem of animal pelts. It was the softest, most luxurious, and had the highest concentration of hairs per square inch, one million. And even back then, a good sea otter pelt would fetch 120 bucks. That was back in the 18th century. 
Ledyard later wrote, quote, The skins, which do not cost the purchaser sixpence sterling, sold in China for a hundred dollars. You know, with this amazing knowledge, Ledyard made his way back to the U.S. in 1782 and started shopping for a backer to finance this idea he had. It would involve buying sea otter pelts in the U.S. Northwest and then, you know, sailing them to China, uh, you know, selling them at a vast profit and then using the proceeds to load up the vessel with, you know, the usual porcelain, lacquerware, tea, and, you know, anything else that could fetch top dollar in New York, Boston, or Philadelphia. Ledyard knew firsthand what the demand was for these sea otter pelts, and in fact, all furs. In his search for a backer, he, of course, first went to New York, but, you know, only met a lot of looky-loo's. Nothing panned out. He was just another guy with a great idea, but no funding, and he just couldn't find a backer. In 1783, he ended up getting hooked up with Robert Morris in Philly, and the two of them decided to go into business together on this venture. The plan was to put together three vessels who would sail together around Cape Horn, and then one would head straight to Canton, and two vessels would go to the Pacific Northwest and load up with furs, and then rendezvous with the third vessel in Canton. Well, all kinds of headaches, heartaches, and setbacks ensued in trying to pull this all together. As excited as Robert Morris was to dive into the China trade, he was up to his eyeballs trying to get the new nation's finances in order. Washington made him the superintendent of finance of the United States, so he was only watching this China venture with half an eye. He was Committed, though, and had written to one of the most sacred of cows of the Founding Fathers, John Jay, quote, I am sending some ships to China to encourage others in the adventurous pursuits of commerce. Robert Morris was really thinking big, but in the end, all the investors could muster up was a single vessel, 100 feet long and 28 feet wide, 360 tons only, and the grandiose plans to go pick up all these furs, fell through, and they ended up with a completely different kind of a shipping manifest instead. Ledyard's dreams went up in smoke. The vessel was laid in with $119,500 worth of lead, cordage, woolen cloth, wine, brandy, rum, beaver furs, and $20,000 in Spanish specie, the international coin of the realm at that time. In addition to this, they packed up 30 tons of ginseng from Pennsylvania and Virginia. This was a very interesting story, how the ginseng business started, but I'm wandering off on too many tangents already. So this vessel was called the Empress of China. Captaining this vessel was John Green, 47 years old, 6 foot 4, and 300 pounds. It was his job to get the Empress of China to the port of Wampoa in Canton and back safely to the U.S. East Coast. The supercargo was Samuel Shaw. The supercargo's job was to deal with the cargo, to ensure its safety and integrity, to sell it, and to use his wits to make all the purchases wherever they went. Now, Although Shaw wouldn't mix with any Chinese government officials in Canton, he was nonetheless appointed as a kind of unofficial consul by the U.S. Congress. Before the Empress of China set sail, there appeared in the Salem Gazette in August of 1783 an article that announced, We hear that a ship is fitting out in Boston for an intended voyage to China, that her cargo out in money and goods, will amount to $150,000, and that she will sail the ensuing fall. Many eminent merchants in different parts of the continent are said to be interested in this first adventure from the new world to the old. We have, at an earlier period than the most sanguine Whig could have expected or ever hoped, or than the most inveterate Tory feared, very pleasing prospects of a very extensive commerce with the most distant parts of the globe. On February 22, 1784, the Empress of China sailed down the East River, past the southern tip of Manhattan, and started heading in the direction of West Africa. 
The War of Independence had only ended six months before, and the last of British troops had only vacated just a few months prior. The Empress of China headed southeast across the Atlantic, stopping first in Cape Verde before heading towards the Cape of Good Hope. By July of 1784, they arrived at the Sunda Strait that separated Sumatra from Java. It was a textbook voyage, low on drama and high on monotony. Between the Sunda Strait and Canton was about as pirate-infested a body of water as there ever was. But Fortune smiled on America's first vessel to sail these seas. They ran into the French naval ship Triton, packing 64 guns. The well-armed Triton kindly escorted the Empress of China from Mu Bay, that is now part of Ujong Kulan National Park on the westernmost tip of Java in Indonesia, all the way to Canton, arriving there in August 1784. That's where it all began. August 1784. That's the Big Bang moment when Zhongmei Guanxi began. Next year will be 220 years. That's when Lao Mei came face to face for the first time with Lao Zhong in China. Many American privateers had come to Canton before this, but that was before the new nation was established. Now, for the first time, a vessel sailing under the stars and stripes made its way up the Pearl River estuary. And when they started running the gauntlet of toll booths and officials with their hands out, they were given the once-over and, well, they were just passed off as just another group of grubby Englishmen. Samuel Shaw and John Green made it clear they came from this, this new country, the United States. When America finally bellied up to the bar and the Empress of China lined itself up alongside the other trading vessels, everyone couldn't have been more welcoming and cordial. However, you know, despite keeping up appearances, these other traders all smelled potential trouble right away. The particular Kohong merchant who got assigned to their case either didn't get it right or didn't want to deal with the hassle. So when he he handed in all the paperwork to the hoppo in Canton. He just ticked the box that said the Empress of China was a British vessel. As far as he could tell, he didn't notice any difference. Well, that's going to cause some complications later. China's population back then was about 300 million versus the United States, who had a population of about 2 million, or roughly one half a percent of China's number. We've narrowed the gap since then. Let me quote from Captain Green's log on Tuesday, August 24th, 1784. 4 p.m., light winds from eastward came to anchor with our best bower anchor in Macau Road in Five Fathom, the town of Macau bearing west-northwest, three miles, saluted the town with seven guns, which was returned by the fort. Mr. S. Shaw, our supercargo, accompanied by Mr. Swift, purser, had the honor of hoisting the first continental flag ever seen or made use of in those seas. At five, a Chinese boat came on board, took down the ship's name, master's name, quantity of men and guns on board, where from and of what nation, then left us. The Chinese officials didn't know what to make of them. These Americans, there, there was no record of who these people were or their country. And the Chinese initially just called them new people or even flowery flag devils. <laughs> when it was learned that these new people showed up empty-handed, you know, without any of the expected, you know, ritual gifts, they reprimanded these Americans and told them, don't come back next time empty-handed. And that the only reason they were being let off the hook was because it was their, it was their first time here. There was no knowledge of protocol and about how the game worked. They learned it by the seat of their pants, where to go in Macau to get the customs permits, then how to deal with the permits required as you pass the bogue, and then exactly, you know, where to sail in Wampoa, where to line up, you know, which merchant would handle their case. I mentioned in previous episodes that these, these Kohong merchants had to pay a vast fortune to get this position, so he was out to maximize his benefits. 
Now, here came Yankee Doodle Dandy, fresh meat. This first-time visit by an American vessel came a year after the failure of the McCartney mission to Beijing and during the final years of the Qianlong Emperor's overly long reign. The Empress of China, sailing the new American flag, lined up alongside the 21 British, 4 French, 4 Dutch, and 4 Danish vessels that were docked there. That was, that was a great moment of symbolism. Here was a vessel flying a flag that waved proudly in the wind next to the flags from the other great and ancient nations. It was too early to tell, and who knew at such an early stage, if this new country would ever amount to anything or offer up any significant competition in those waters. Well, they'll find out later on that not only did Americans sell to their own home market, they even busted in on the British markets and in the West Indies markets, challenging the British even on their home pitch. It didn't take long. Samuel Shaw left us with many interesting first-hand observations from his journal. As he slowly made his way to the port, he gave a nice description of the scene there. He wrote, The surface of the river was thickly covered with vessels of different sizes, of singular forms and rigging, many of which were painted with gay and fantastical colors. Here were boats and small craft in great variety, with numerous junks of from four to five hundred tons burthen, covered with painted figures and glaring hues of almost every device that ingenuity could invent, all containing men, women and children in grotesque garments, huddled together in great numbers and actively engaged in different employments, while the crash of gongs and the hum of business heard from every quarter presented a scene full of life and hilarity. On September 14, 1784, one of the key rituals in the whole trading theater occurred when the hapo came to perform the measurement of the Empress of China. This would determine the amount that would be extracted from them in taxes and fees. And this was known as Cumshaw and Measurement. Cumshaw, you've all heard of, I'm sure. It's a little like Bakshish in the Middle East. The name means gold sands. Jinsha, which in mispronounced Cantonese is called Gumsa, which morphed into Cumshaw, like gold dust. But it was basically a bribe offered up in the form of a gift. Shaw put it this way in his journal, quote, At 10 a.m. came on board the Grand Mandarin with his attendants and the principal merchants of Canton to measure the ship, saluted them with nine guns. The Grand Mandarin sent on board as a present to the ship two bulls, eight bags of flour, and seven jars of country wine. See, this is where the Americans blew it by not knowing how the deal worked. They were supposed to show the hapo when he came on board all the finest things they had and gifts that they brought for him. They were supposed to lay everything out, you know, in a nice little display. And then the hapo would pick out the stuff he wanted for himself. And it would be packed up and then it would be, you know, sent to his magnificent residence. You know, and to keep up appearances to show this wasn't a bribe. The foreigner was obliged to charge the hapo for all these things, but, you know, the invoice would always be written at perhaps 5% of its real value. You know, this is how it worked. The Americans had a map, and they were able to show the Chinese authorities where exactly they had come from geographically. They had to assure them they were, they were not British, not in the least, and that theirs was a new and independent country. So despite showing up empty-handed without the requisite gifts, they were still allowed to stay there with all the other gathered traders and sell their cargo and buy Chinese goods between September and December 1784. One of the crew of the Empress of China, writing to his father in a letter, wrote, quote, The Chinese had never heard of us, but we introduced ourselves as a new nation, gave them our history with a description of our country, the importance and necessity of trade, here to the advantage of both, which they appear perfectly to understand and wish. Unbeknownst to the American supercargo Samuel Shaw, in between the time they left New York City and the time they arrived at their space along the dock, the price of ginseng, the main commodity they were carrying, had tanked, and their 30 tons was now worth substantially less than what they had anticipated. 
The best and most prized ginseng came from China's northeast and in Korea because of the massive Chinese demand for the stuff. Imported ginseng started making its way to China in the 1740s. Once word hit the street that the Chinese liked the stuff, the magical powers of capitalism did their thing. And in no time at all, everyone who could get into the ginseng business did. And the price for imported ginseng went from about $15 a pound in Canton to, you know, a buck fifty to two and a quarter a pound. The American product wasn't as prized as the ginseng you could get up in Liaoning, Jilin, or North Korea, but it was certainly strongly in demand and satisfied the market. It reminds me of the time in 2000 or 2001, the outfit I was with took a big position in the knockoff Razor scooter importing business about 15 minutes before the bottom fell out of the market. Nonetheless, everything got sold, and as was also the supercargo's job, he made all the purchases as well, dealing with the Kohong merchant the whole time, of course, and he loaded up with 700 chests of Bohe tea, B O H E A, in Chinese. This was a type of wulong uh, called Wu Yi Cha. They also bought a hundred chests of Haisen tea that was also known as Lucky Dragon, was called a Xichun Cha. It was a green tea from, from Anhui. In addition to a hefty amount of porcelain, they also bought trousers made from a material that was called Nankin. Nankin was just a was 100% cotton fabric that, as the name suggests originally, came from a cotton plant from Nanjing. The color was a sort of yellow or buff, and that was its chief characteristic. Later, it was made everywhere and just dyed in that color to give it that, that Nanking look. It was a big China export. On May 11, 1785, the Empress of China arrived back where it had all started, sailing home up the East River. After all accounts were settled, Robert Morris and his fellow investors despite the bottom falling out of the ginseng market, made a nice $30,727 profit on the venture, which it was more than a 25% return on their initial investment. Not bad. Bernie Madoff only got his investors 12%. After he got back, the supercargo of the Empress of China, Samuel Shaw, duly wrote up all his notes and recollections, and he reported to John Jay as follows, quote, to every lover of this country, as well as those more immediately concerned in its commerce, it must be a pleasing reflection that a communication is thus happily opened between us and the eastern extremity of the globe. John Jay replied to Shaw that the U.S. Congress felt, quote, a particular satisfaction in the successful issue of the first effort of the citizens of America to establish direct trade with China which does so much honor to its undertakers and conductors. Word traveled fast about the success of the Empress of China and the profits it brought its investors. There was also talk on the streets about how, with this achievement in China, it showed how their nation was emerging onto the world scene. Although everything had been nice and friendly during the first American visit to China, the British traders at once began to circle the wagons, and from here on out, the, the relations between American and British traders were often anything but cordial. But, you know, this is way, way before Winston Churchill in 1946 with the, you know, speech and the, the special relationship and everything. The rush was on. It was written, quote, every little village on every little creek with a sloop that could hold five Yankees was now planning to embark upon the Far Eastern trade. Between 1784 and 1814, around 300 American ships made 618 voyages to Guangzhou. And this didn't include the smuggling vessels. A whole new industry was suddenly born, and people rushed in. And from this budding China trade, pioneered by the success of the Empress of China, came America's first millionaires and multimillionaires. But once Americans came calling to China. They learned the same thing that everyone else knew. The Canton system stacked the deck totally against the foreign traders. But despite all the taxes, fees, bribes, and various other hidden costs, the China trade was still quite profitable. One man who 
took the lead in this emerging market was one John Jacob Astor, the first prince of China trade. He began his business in 1800 and built a fur trading empire, and most of his profits came from offloading these animal skins in China, where they fetched the highest prices. He took a lot of these profits and plowed them into Manhattan real estate and other investments. We remember this man's great-grandson, John Jacob Astor IV, who tragically but bravely died on the Titanic at the age of 47. The Astor name, of course, is a great and historic name in the annals of American history. Stephen Gerard was another one who, you know, did particularly well in the China trade. Both Astor and especially Gerard, as Robert Morris did during the Revolutionary War, almost single-handedly financed the American side in the War of 1812. These men who engaged in this trade were the first American tycoons. They did especially well during the Napoleonic Wars from 1792 to 1815 because, you know, being neutral and all, these American vessels were less apt to fall prey to French or British naval ships. To suddenly have this vast market available couldn't have come at a better time for the United States. The ripple effect of this China trade that ran up and down the whole U.S. economy was felt everywhere. You know, for example, the shipbuilding industry was massively affected. Remember, this in turn employed thousands upon thousands in the shipbuilding and shipping industry. In addition to this, there were all the, the suppliers to this industry, too. Wealth was created, and from this wealth, the American economy began to pick up some steam. Aside from ginseng, furs, and silver, the Americans in the early 1790s found a fourth thing that the Chinese market had quite the demand for. And this was sandalwood. It came from Hawaii, the Sandwich Islands. Later on, this resource also was discovered uh, in Fiji. That's where American vessels packed with sea otter pelts sailing from West Coast ports would stop to you know, stock up on provisions before making the, the final beeline to the South China Sea. Whatever empty cargo space remained, they'd top it off with sandalwood. And you got to believe, trying to satisfy Chinese demand for sea otter furs and any skins from fur seals and, and all the sandalwood, it had a huge impact on the whole ecology of the region. The forests were cut down to the last tree, and so many fur seals and otters had been trapped that they began to become scarce, and you know it threw the whole ecosystem into disarray. They needed something else to narrow the trade gap. And of course, you know what that's going to be. When Samuel Shaw spent his several months in Canton, he observed the whole opium trade close up. He saw what the demand was and the kind of profits that could be had in trading in these chests of opium. So the Americans, being an enterprising lot, got into the opium business in 1804. Some serious trafficking started going on. Now you're probably wondering how did they get a hold of opium? Didn't that all come from India? Well, not exactly. The Americans found their own supply. This was in Turkey. They picked it up in Izmir at two fifty a pound, and it fetched ten bucks a pound in Canton. The Turkish opium was not as fine as the Indian stuff, but it certainly did the trick and got these Chinese smokers high. The Americans sort of dealt with the opium business in a similar fashion as the East India Company. The shipping companies didn't handle it themselves personally. The actual job of shipping it to China and selling it went to these third-party vessels, you know, some smuggler probably. And let me just add, the Americans were small-time petty dealers in opium compared to the British. Now, you'd think with all the ginseng, furs, sandalwood, and opium that the Americans would have a nice, favorable balance of trade. Well, this didn't happen. That's how huge the demand was back in the States for Chinese products. If they sold $150,000 in goods to the Chinese and picked up $200,000 worth of stuff in Canton, that balance, fifty grand, had to be covered in silver 
that is, Spanish dollars and pieces of eight, the global currency of its day. 65 to 75% of U.S. imports were paid for in silver. So this whole hot-button issue of the trade deficit with China goes back 200 years ago. It's interesting to note that the whole business of OEM manufacturing in China had also already begun. This is where a factory will manufacture something or other according to the design and specifications given to them by a customer. This is more or less the business I've been involved in for a quarter century. Not content just to buy Chinese-designed porcelain, the enterprising American traders would bring their own designs to these Chinese and ask them to make these, you know, whatever, porcelain dishes or this tea service or whatever, using American motif designs that they, you know, brought with them. And then Chinese would take the order, manufacture it, and sell it to them. Made in China porcelain with perhaps, you know, an image of George Washington or, you know, the American flag. Between 1784 and the Terra Nova incident of 1821, U.S.-China relations were played out on the docks of Wampoa. The Americans were rather content to sit back and let Britain do all the dirty work of pushing China around and softening them up to get them to open up more ports. In these first decades, the whole matter of China's relationship with the U.S. was all measured through the prism of commerce. I mentioned the Terra Nova incident. That was the first diplomatic incident that happened between the U.S. and China. Some poor guy named Francis Terra Nova was on board an American vessel in Canton and threw a jar or something overboard and it hit a Chinese boatwoman who was unfortunately right in harm's way. The thing hit her in the head and knocked her in the water and she drowned. As far as Chinese law went at that time during the Qing Dynasty... There was no differentiation made between a death caused by accident and one caused by malicious intent. As far as Chinese law was concerned, same thing. American law made the differentiation. So that was the rub back in 1821, and a good old-fashioned standoff ensued. But in the end, facing the prospect of not being allowed to trade with China, the American side had no choice but to hand Francis Terranova over to the Chinese authorities, and he was dealt a little Chinese justice. The U.S.-China relationship, however, survived the Terranova incident okay. The Americans already knew how this was going to play out because the Empress of China was in Canton between November 24th and December 6th, 1784, when the Lady Hughes affair went down. This was a British ship that got entangled in a similar predicament. One of their gunners, when firing a salute, as commanded, accidentally blew away two Chinese who were unexpectedly passing through harm's way. The Chinese demanded the British offer this gunner up. There was the usual standoff and huffing and puffing, and the Chinese slapped an embargo on all British ships. And finally, after realizing that the Chinese officials were Holding all the aces, the Lady Hughes surrendered the guy who was shortly thereafter executed. But remember the lazy Kohong merchant I mentioned earlier who who registered the Empress of China with the Hapo as a British vessel? Well, the Empress of China ended up getting caught up in the embargo too, which was only meant to affect the British country ships from India. Samuel Shaw and another key player in this venture who I haven't mentioned, Thomas Randall, appealed to the French consul, to advocate on their behalf. And they wrote, Sir, the undersigned supercargoes for the American commerce in China beg leave to acquaint you that they have undoubted reason to believe that through the misrepresentation of our Kohong merchant were reported to the Hapo as being Englishmen and the ship in which they arrived at this place as an English country ship, and consequently that they should be considered subjects of Great Britain. To take off from this misrepresentation and to announce to the Chinese that we are the subjects of a free, independent, and sovereign power is the reason of our present application. And we request, in the name of the United States of America, the allies and good friends of His Most Christian Majesty, that you will cause to be made known to the Chinese that we are Americans, a free and independent and sovereign nation 
not connected with Great Britain, nor owing allegiance to her or any other power on earth, but to the authority of the United States alone, and that we pray the Chinese to consider us in that view and grant us our passports accordingly. The United States continued to follow the policy of maintaining a steady course with China trade, allowing Britain to do all the heavy lifting, and just followed their lead. You know, of course, where all this is heading, the 1830s, the Opium War is going to happen. And when Britain and China ink that most famous or infamous of the Bu Ping Deng Tiaoyue, the unequal treaties, it's going to freak American traders out. They saw how Britain rammed this treaty down China's throat, and now they had five more ports to sail to, extraterritoriality and all the usual imperialist demands. The United States government perceived this as a threat that would put Britain in the position to have a leg up on all U.S.-China commerce. The traders saw nothing good in this for them, and they, being the most moneyed of the moneyed class, leaned hard on their congressmen and whoever else they had access to, and said, something has to be done about this. The American traders wanted the same exact benefits that Britain got. But in order to do that, they had to go to China and negotiate this. And up to this point, the United States, relatively speaking, even in 1840, was still a new country. Although the economy was growing by leaps and bounds, they still didn't have the ability to maintain overseas diplomatic posts, or to project power in any way. This was a pretty big step to consider, going to China to sign a treaty. This is where Caleb Cushing enters our story. He was from Massachusetts, where most of the China traders were based. He was their guy. And if that wasn't enough, Cushing's father had moved out to the Pacific Northwest, to Oregon, and he was knee-deep in the China trade. And so, in the 1830s, Caleb Cushing, with his father's interests in mind and the interests of all these Massachusetts China traders he represented, became the first person in the U.S. government to advocate for the establishment of some kind of official relations with China. Up to now, going back to the Empress of China, there was still nothing. The two countries traded goods, but no ambassadors had been exchanged and no treaties had been entered into. Caleb Cushing had two big friends in Washington. One was the 10th president of the United States. Yes, his accidency himself, John Tyler. The other was the Secretary of State, Daniel Webster. Those two looked at Cushing as their China expert, you know, and knowing how to talk the talk. He was, you know, he was very influential over them when it came to that whole subject of China trade. In addition to serving as a U.S. congressman during Tyler's administration, Caleb Cushing would later serve as attorney general under the 14th president, Franklin Pierce. Once the Treaty of Nanjing happened, Cushing really turned up the heat and said the United States government had to do something or else it would adversely affect the interests of American trade in China. He vehemently argued that, quote, if the United States did not act in the Far East, the British would seize Japan and Hawaii, giving them control of the Pacific to the immense future peril, not only of our territory possessions, but all our vast commerce on the Pacific. But in 1843, with the terms of the Treaty of Nanjing reverberating around the corridors in Washington, Tyler nominated Cushing as commissioner and U.S. ambassador to China. In China, this was during the final years of the historically unlucky Daoguang Emperor. All the way up to 1857, the U.S. was represented in China by these commissioners, like Cushing, rather than you know full-fledged ambassadors. There wasn't any system in place yet to handle this kind of formal diplomatic arrangement. So lacking credentials for now... Caleb Cushing was only an envoy rather than an ambassador. So with Cushing's influence, John Tyler now announced that official U.S. policy from now on considered the Pacific Ocean and Hawaii to be within the sphere of U.S. influence. 
The feeling around Washington was that these actions would counter any kind of threat to the possible British monopolization of the China market. Tyler requested funding from the Congress to pay for a full-time commissioner to reside in China to look after American interests there. Tyler received support from even one of his political enemies, the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. Adams had said that this proposed mission would, quote, provide the means of future intercourse between the United States government and the government of China. The issue was debated in Congress in February of 1843. The House ended up passing the bill, voting 96 to 59 in support. Daniel Webster, who used his formidable influence to push this bill forward, after passing, declared it would be the, quote, most important mission in history. And 129 years later, Nixon would call his visit to the Middle Kingdom the week that changed the world. Boy, you could always rely on us Americans to come up with these superlatives. Well, the mission went ahead, and the upshot to all this is the Treaty of Wangxia. President Tyler's commissioner and envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary of the United States for China, Caleb Cushing, and his entourage sailed to Macau, and there he met with his counterpart, Qi Ying, Qi Ying of the you know, Imperial House of Da Qing was also guardian of the heir apparent, governor general of the two Guangs, and superintendent general of the trade and foreign intercourse of the five ports. He was a Manchu from the royal family who goes down in history as the signer not only of the Treaty of Nanjing, but this one at Wangxia with the Americans, and the Treaty of Wampoa with the French, and the Treaty of Canton with Sweden and Norway. So he gets the dubious distinction of being the signer of all four of the unequal treaties that followed the disastrous defeat in the Opium War. I already added him to my list of future topics. No need to get into what happened next. We all know from this point forward until liberation in 1949, China is going to suffer one humiliation and loss of face after another. Wang Xiao was located in Macau, in the northeast part. The actual treaty itself was signed at the Guanyin Temple, or the Guanyin Tang, which previously was known as the Puyi Chanyuan. It's still there today if you want to visit. And the treaty was inked on the 3rd of July, in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1844, in the 24th year, 5th month, and 18th day of the reign of Dao Guang. Article 1 went like this, quote, There shall be a perfect, permanent, and universal peace and a sincere and cordial amity between the United States of America on the one part and the Da Qing Empire on the other part, and between their people, respectively, without exception of persons or places. You know, that part was okay. Good way to... Start U.S.-China official relations, but the other 33 clauses in the treaty pretty much echoed everything that was contained in the Treaty of Nanjing, plus a couple other conditions, such as, you know, allowing for Protestant missionaries in China and their protection. And also from now on, it was okay to hire tutors and to learn Chinese uh, language, you know, Mandarin, without the risk of getting executed. So, with the Treaty of Wangxia, unequal as it was, America and China entered into their first official diplomatic exchange. To show their sincerity, the American side came out against the dealing of opium. Article 33 stated, Citizens of the United States who shall attempt to trade clandestinely with such of the ports of China as are not open to foreign commerce, or who shall trade in opium or any other contraband articles of merchandise, shall be subject to be dealt with by the Chinese government without being entitled to any countenance or protection from that of the United States. But Article 21 of the treaty sort of made a mockery of that when it stated, quote, Subjects of China who may be guilty of any criminal act towards citizens of the United States shall be arrested and punished by the Chinese authorities according to the laws of China. 
and the citizens of the United States who may commit any crime in China shall be subject to be tried and punished only by the consul or other public functionary of the United States, thereto authorized according to the laws of the United States, and in order to the prevention of all controversy and disaffection, justice shall be equitable and impartially administered on both sides. Ah, good old extraterritoriality. Those were the days. Now some, including the American dean of Chinese studies, John King Fairbank himself, said this treaty didn't really constitute any kind of U.S.-China policy. Real U.S.-China relations didn't begin until later on in 1898 when William Woodville Rock Hill proclaimed, quote, all nations, including the United States, could enjoy equal access to the China market. This essentially was his call for America's so-called open-door policy. And Rock Hill is considered the father of that policy. Two things led to this. First was Japan's defeat of China in the First Sino-Japanese War, and then America's acquisition of the Philippines following the Spanish-American War in 1898. The fear in the U.S. was that China was simply going to be partitioned by Japan, Britain, and others, and this wasn't going to be good for U.S.-China trade. So this open-door policy was meant to protect American business interests there. Once we had our feet firmly planted in the Philippines, this gave us a nice, convenient base from which to have a much larger voice and presence in China. And it's at this point that John King Fairbanks says U.S.-China policy you know, really began. William Woodville Rockhill, by the way, aside from being a fluent Mandarin speaker, was also the first American to study and learn how to speak Tibetan and is considered the father of Tibetan studies here in the U.S. He was also our guy in Beijing when it came time to to, uh, negotiate the Boxer Protocols. He's a great late 19th century diplomat who had a big impact on our China policy and isn't terribly well known, which also makes him fodder as a future China History podcast episode. And so, my fine friends, that is the story about the earliest days when Zhong and Mei first started mingling and getting to know one another in China. I have to admit, after finishing off that Yelu Apoji episode last time, I was, I was at a loss where to go from there. And then, with everybody in town from the Ningbo head office and you know, doing one of those coast-to-coast deals, it was, it was hard to focus. I I perused my long list of topics and just wasn't getting any inspiration at all. Then my eye caught this book on my shelf. It was Eric J. Dolan's When America First Met China. This book came out in 2012. It was published by Liverite Publishing. I download podcasts that I never listen to, not yet anyway, and I buy all these China-related books on Amazon that just pile up unread. You know, and this was one of them. So I thought this would be a good topic. The genesis of U.S.-China foreign relations. How did that all begin? And what were the circumstances when the newest country in the world first came calling to the oldest country in the world? Eric J. Dolan's book is fantastic. And it's filled with great information. So I'm surprised it took me this long to take it off the shelf of my ever-expanding China History podcast reference library. Glad I did this because it really is a great story. The very humble beginnings of U.S.-China relations. I also uh, ordered from Amazon The Empress of China by Philip Chadwick Foster Smith. These two volumes combined will offer you, I think, every possible conceivable nugget and crumb of information that you could ever hope to know about the voyage, trials, and tribulations of the Empress of China and everyone who was associated with this venture. There were rogues galore. I only scratched the top of the surface, and I heartily uh, recommend both these books. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Claremont, California. It's been gray and cold out this past week but beautiful today. But anyway, cold is a relative thing, I guess. If Viger was here from Frederikstad in Norway, I suppose he'd be 
walking around in shorts. I have three layers on right now. Well, to all my fellow Americanskis here in the home of the brave and to all American expats all over this watered world, a happy Thanksgiving. Take care, everyone, and I hope I'll see you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.